Welcome to Overdue Classics, the podcast for all the books you've been meaning to read. I'm Brandon LeBlanc, and I am joined today by Andrea Lipinski and Matt Bianco, which means we've gotten the band back together. Woo-woo! We're back for a world tour. We're just all back in the same place at the same time again. Mm-hmm. How are you guys doing? I'm grateful to be here with you, too. Good to see you. Yeah, I'm excited to be back. We haven't done a book together in several <clears throat> months, so this should be fun. Mm-hmm. Been a while, uh, yeah. If I mean, you've been, it was a nice break for me because <laughs> you know, how busy the summers are, and it was a good chance to hear other voices too. So I imagine that was good for the audience. But mm-hmm. yeah, it's good to be back. I thoroughly enjoyed Patty and Brian. It's been good. It is fun, especially since those are some voices that have been around Cersei for a long time too. So it's good to have them on, and but it's good to be back with you guys. Oh, Mid fall here, so maybe we're kind of settling in as we kind of tend to follow, follow the academic calendar uh, as well. So, um, well, we are jumping back in to uh, one of our one of our own translations here by, by uh, C. Scott and David V. Hicks with some Plutarch, uh, which is exciting. Um, we are going to go with the lawgivers this time, which is the parallel lives of Numa Pompilius and Lycurgus of Sparta. And we start with the Spartan. So that's week one. We'll be talking Lycurgus. Uh, I think we've all read this one before, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That work. Yeah. Yeah. Plutarch is my, is one of my son's favorites. So he's been, he's been arguing at his college for more Plutarch in the syllabus. So we'll see how he, if he succeeds. Either one of you feel up for giving us a, a synopsis here of, of the first half of, of Lycurgus of Sparta. I've been waiting all summer for this very moment. Awesome. Matt's like, their, their narrations have been terrible. I'm coming back and showing them how it's done. I will not be doing that. <laughs> but I will give it a shot. It's kind of hard, though, because the first part of the life is very narrate narrative-based. But the second half is more concept, I guess, conceptual, you know. But I'll give it a shot. Let's see. Like, Curtis's father dies... And then his older brother becomes the king, Sparta. And then his older brother, well, I guess technically it starts out by telling us that we don't really know who Lycurgus was, um, which is a very interesting way to start a, a story where you're going to tell his life and you're going to attribute all these details to him, but you're basically admitting up front that you don't really know any of this. Um, we don't really know who he was. We don't really know even what time period he lived in. Some people believe he lived around the time of Homer and that he knew Homer. And some people believe he lived after that. We don't really know much about his time period, I guess. But but at some point, his bloodline becomes the king of Sparta, becomes the kings of Sparta, and his father dies, and his older brother becomes the king, and then his older brother dies. So then he becomes a king because there was no heir, except there was an heir. His sister-in-law turns out to be pregnant, and so he declares that he will not be the king but he will be the uh guardian of his nephew once the nephew is born and that the the nephew will be king and then his sister-in-law sends him a letter or note or i don't know um pigeon male pigeon by pigeon um and tells him that she will kill her son kill her child if he if he like Kyrgyz will marry her and then she could be the queen beside him as king 
that offends him. And he tells her that he will do that and that she needs to move in with him so he can take care of her, but not to do anything to the baby that he wants to take responsibility for getting rid of the child. And so instead of aborting the child, she will give birth to the child. And then he will, if it's a girl, then the girl will be fine. But if it's a boy, then he will get rid of the boy. He will take responsibility for getting rid of the boy. And then when the baby is born or he has the nurse, the, the, the midwives, midwives. Thank you. Um, he gives them a notice that if the baby's a girl, then to give it to the mother. But if the baby's a boy, to bring the boy directly to him, making sure that the mother's not going to step in and finish the job for him. And then she brings the boy to him, or they bring the boy to him, and then he immediately raises the child up in the air and says, unto you a king is born, which sounds very reminiscent of another person that was said about. Then he um, he basically rules as the king or as the the caretaker king and he passes all of these laws laws that eliminate disparity between the rich and the poor laws that eliminate disparity between men and women laws that eliminate um basically all kinds of disparity based on circumstances the only disparity that's that's allowed in the city is a disparity based on character and then at the end of his life, I'm going to tell the narrative part of it first. So there's some of it comes at the end of the story, but I'm going to pull it in earlier. At the end of his life, he decides that he is going to leave and go to the Oracle at Delphi to ask Apollo if all of the laws are the right laws for the city to be able to continue on without him. And Apollo said, or, and then he says, before I leave, you all have to swear an oath that you will never change any of the laws or disobey any of the laws until I return. And the Spartans agree, and he leaves, and he goes to the Oracle at Apollo of Delphi, and Apollo tells him that all of the laws are good, and so long as the Spartans obey the laws, they will be good. And he sends that message back to the Spartans, the Lacedaemonians, and they um, receive that, and then he kills himself so that he can never return to Sparta, so that they will, for all eternity, have to obey the laws and not change them um, if in order to keep their oath, which actually happens, I think, for several hundred years, according to, um, according to Plutarch. And then amongst the laws that he established, one was a redistribution of wealth or a property. He redistributed all the property so that everybody had the same land, again, to eliminate disparity by circumstances. He tried to do that with their personal property, but that they actually fought against and they wouldn't let him take away their couches and bowls and tripods. Um, and... Then he changed the money so that there was no silver or gold and that the money was iron, but he made the iron workers make the iron in such a way that it was very brittle. So it wasn't actually usable for anything. And you had to have so much iron for it to be valuable in any, I mean, to have enough to be able to buy anything that it basically became impossible to stockpile the iron 
and to transport it. And so in that way, money basically goes away and they no longer um, have a disparity of wealth or property. Then he requires them to have a common meal. So they basically, it's basically like living in a military encampment where you eat all your meals or you eat your meal together at the end of the day. And that prevented them from having the, you know, some people having fancy food meals and other people having impoverished meals. So they all ate together. The women trained with the men or the, the girls trained with the boys and the girls were, were, taught in such a way that they would be wise and that they would be strong and that they were given the authority to um, tease and praise the boys um, so that they were the bestowers of honor on the young men who were in training, which then brought, it eliminated the disparity between men and women. Also for the families to just to eliminate the disparity of families. Okay. At this point, it basically it's describing the Republic book four, um, which is interesting because they also have their women in common and they have their children in common to the point where like men had wives but it was encouraged for the men to share their wives with other men so that those men could have good offspring um and the uh so that there was no disparity even there like and who had who had good breeding and who didn't have good breeding they just shared all the breeding um so it gets a little bit weird in places um and the um, the training was done in such a way to it was all very virtue based, but the primary virtue is clearly courage. Like that's the virtue they care about the most. Whereas in Plato's Republic, it seems to sound like it's justice. Here, it seems like it's courage. Right? They're, the whole thing is set up and designed to be to promote courage in the men and in the women, even in their witticisms. Like they're very brief. Brevity is the soul of wit, as it were, and they they speak in always like brief kind of, kind of um, almost like proverbs, but but they're not proverbs. I mean, they are, but I guess but they're Spartan proverbs, mm-hmm. so they're very brief and they're very witty and they're very cutting. Like they just, if somebody was criticizing them, they could respond to that very quickly and very briefly and kind of shut it down. Um, so there's there was a a strength in their courage with both their hands and their words um um yeah there's one more thing now that i wanted to say but i can't remember what it was hmm. um yeah anyways okay i guess that's it that's the end of my narration how'd i do excellent 87 sweet gold star but okay so i do have a question Uh oh. Okay. when when you guys when you okay, how do you read Plutarch? <laughs> is this is this is everything he's saying intended to be praise? Like is he just straight up praising him the whole way? Like everything he says, he agrees with it and thinks it's good? Or is he simply just communicating the facts of the case? Like, and this is what he did without any sort of I mean, except for where he explicitly says it, he's not necessarily commenting on the goodness or the badness of it, the rightness or the wrongness of it. Right. Um because that seems to be the two options here. Because he doesn't really criticize Lycurgus in any way. I feel like there are other ones where he does criticize the person. But he doesn't seem to criticize Lycurgus. So is he praising Kyrgyz the whole way th- Lycurgus the whole way through? Or is he is he just presenting the facts of the case? How did you guys read it? I appreciate your question. And I think I can change my mind. 
uh, when I read the second one, right? Again, um, it's been a little while. Well, should we should we vote on this, Brandon? Are we going to allow her to change her mind after the uh, next reading? Hmm. <laughs> <laughs> she could always convince us with strong rhetoric why she should be allowed to change her mind. What What are your What are your thoughts? What's your initial thoughts on to that question? Well, because I'm I, if the, I, if I understand the question correctly, the question is: While I'm reading him, am I reading that Plutarch is praising? censuring or factualizing those can be my words um like Kyrgyz of sparta and with only having one fresh in my head that's why i would like the opportunity to possibly change my mind um just to compare how he presents somebody else so yeah i mean i i i really took a few steps back when he launches this one saying we know nothing about this man basically so-and-so says this, and so-and-so says this, and so-and-so says this, and there's really... So I'm just going to go with the most popular ones that are the, the least argued about. And I'm going to give you all those. And so it's like, is this really one person now? Or are we more so in, seeing an accumulation? So while I read it, this was my question. Did one person really make all of these decisions? Or is this the re-presentation of an accumulation of people into one? Because that's a mm. different kind of thing. Right. If one person had all of this, did all of this, there's a little bit of an amazement in that. I don't always agree with his decisions. Right. But one person embodying all of these decisions versus the accumulation of giving credit to one. It's kind of interesting because he says there is one place where he brings up. It's kind of it's like a refutation, actually. Mm. Uh, so it does feel like a censure or a praise that has a reputation against somebody who's censoring him, but he, he mentions some criticism that people have. And then he says, but I don't think that was like Kyrgyz that did that. I think those are actually things that came later on in the Spartan mm -hmm. history and not the, as a result of like Kyrgyz's reforms. Yeah. The that, abuses of the, of the slaves or whatever. Yeah. Yeah. I think, cause I mean, I read that beginning part more like, we're not sure which like Kyrgyz, did this like there's two like Kyrgyz's that live at different times and the laws are attributed attributed to or this this law is attributed to like Kyrgyz but we're not sure if it's this one at like near Homer's time or near uh Heracles time but that seems to be the dispute like which which like Kyrgyz it was right and we have that other places right so even when we talk about like biblical scholarship you know which which priest names Zacchaeus was in the temple because <laughs> like, several of them were killed in the temple <laughs> over over time um that kind of thing and so that's where i read that first part but to answer to your question matt i and i haven't read many beyond the ones that cersei's published um so maybe there are some more where they they do more of the kind of pros and cons of he just gives more positives and negatives in the actual life when he presents it it seems to me most of the criticism though from Plutarch comes when he compares the two lives when he decide when he cut when in the in the last part of these things where he compares the two lives he oftentimes will give it some opinion toward which of the two he thinks is the better right so in this in this case where he's comparing two lawmakers two lawgivers um in the other edition we've put out he's comparing two statesmen and so they're not exactly the same they're different versions of someone who's a whose character is, is to give the law um, he seems to, if I remember correctly, he seems to do more of the one is better than the other in the comparison. But this read more to me like 
like an encomium, right? Mostly, mostly positive. I think I mentioned to you, Andrea, a couple weeks ago that I'm, that's what I'm teaching this year is a writing junior high class writing. That's, that does, they're learning how to write encomiums or I never can say the other one, right? Vituperations, the, the censuring speeches mm. for things they're reading. And I actually put a note in my thing because there's a point where he talks about how, how the Spartans would do that, right? That, um, uh, page 74, uh, right. Kind of toward the beginning of section 20, those little bracketed sections, number 25, that it was, they, they used humor, but that the, they would spend their time talking about things that were worthy of praise or deserving censure, but lighthearted in a way that wasn't, it was meant to, um, correct the person, you know, it was meant to be corrective criticism, not, not punitive criticism. In, at least in the conversation. So I thought that was interesting that he talks about like Kyrgyz's laws encouraging this type of behavior in something where he's basically doing that, right? He's basically giving an encomium of like Kyrgyz. So, but he does seem careful to not, to, to attribute, he does seem purposeful in attributing any of the negative characteristics to someone kind of misusing his laws later. It does seem interesting then that uh, Plutarch is just so accepting of some of these weird laws. Yeah. I mean, if we go all the way to say this is him praising, then it's, you know, if he's either censoring or praising, if it's got to be one of those, then it's praising. Yeah. And you mentioned that things that sounded like the Republic, and that's like, that's clear in the text, right? That he, uh, mm-hmm. as Plato, and then he kind of quotes Plato. And then in, in the Hicks's notes, there's even things about where, almost where it's almost exactly mirroring something like, the laws is the one I picked. I, I wasn't sure at one point I was making my notes if it was from coming from the Republic. Is the laws part of the Republic? No. No. Sorry. I thought it was a separate one. So they mentioned the laws also, but it seems like a lot of that. But then it's maybe confused a little bit by um, when exactly he's giving, when exactly like Kyrgyz is giving his laws time in the timeline. Because if he's in, if he's near the time of Homer, that would be probably put him before Plato, right? Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah, like, I mean, for 400 years before Plato, probably. Hmm. I mean, Socrates is pretty praiseworthy of the Spartans in the Republic. So, I mean, you could see that he would he would draw, I mean, you could see where he might draw principles from Sparta into his just city, but be trying to re, refocus it on justice rather than courage, you know? Hmm. The um, it's interesting because in the laws they actually talk about like Curtis's reforms, and and that is the criticism of the Socrates character is that um, Sparta makes courage the supreme virtue, hmm. where he hmm. thinks it should not be, and then you know if you read if it depends how you read it because most people scholars all say the laws was written last. So if you're trying to read them in publication order, mm-hmm. then you would read you would read um, the laws last. But there is a um, there are clues internal to the dialogues where you could read them in the order that they take place in Socrates' life. Mm-hmm. And if you do that, then laws gets read first. And so it, that then it's interesting because if you're reading the laws first, as if Plato's putting them in this kind of dramatic ordering then you have this you have this not this non-Socrates Socratic character Mm -hmm. who's talking to a Spartan and a Cretan okay he tells them that 
the law should not be focusing on courage. The law should be focusing on, you know, I, I think it's justice. I can't remember now, but pretty sure it's justice. And and then, you know, halfway through Socrates' life, he does his dialogue on the just or the perfect city and the perfect cities focus on I, justice. I have read that now that you say it. Yeah, that's the one where it's it's theorized that it's, that that character is like a young Socrates, right? Fresh off the wars and that kind of stuff, but he's not he's not named as Socrates, the lawgiver. I don't know if I that might be one of the theories, but he's he's not. It's not Socrates. Like okay. it's not. It's, not, um, it's a, I think it's an old man, but it takes place in the time when Socrates would have been a young man at war. Okay, it's placed in the in that in that compilation. Old, the compilation of all Plato's works. It's at the very beginning, right? It's they put the it in. Yeah. No. yeah. no. But I remember that conversation now, though, which is interesting because it has like Hergus going to Crete early on in Plutarch's telling. That's one of the first places he visits while he's trying to avoid accusations of him trying to take over from his nephew. He goes oh, to right. Crete and studies their laws and then a couple other places. And if he is alive closer to the time of Homer, that's an interesting time frame for these laws lasting like almost 500 years before they kind of uh, came to an end by kings that were that allowed the wealth to come in, then they would have had that stable government, you know, for several hundred years by the time you have Socrates writing. Yeah. Um, and just about to fall apart, basically, in, right. during that time period. With the only error in Socrates' mind being that they got the order part right, but they had it focus on, on creating courage instead of focus on creating justice. Mm -hmm. Interesting. Uh, the, you know that that opening, the opening part of the story, which I forgot that element that you just brought up, Brandon. That when he is acting as the guardian for his nephew king, accusations start getting made against him. So then he ends up leaving and going to Crete and Egypt. They said, and then there's some place that he went to see what a what a an undisciplined community looked like. What was that? Where was that? Uh, in Asia, let's see, Ionians, the Ionians. Ionians, yeah. But it's interesting because in that whole that whole scene with with you know declaring that his unborn nephew would become king, and then saving the unborn nephew from the from his mother from the nephew's mother, and then when he does get attacked by the by the people in that one scene, the guy that blinds him. Or blinds his one eye, that guy ends up becoming like one of his most devoted supporters and followers because of the way he treats him. Like all of those stories kind of build up this man that's like, uh, well, he's like an ideal type, right? Like he's just so he's so committed to what's true and good and right and uh, justice. Justice, yeah. That even with the with the throne being basically given to him he refuses to take it um and you know protects and does what's right and soft he's gentle not not soft in an anti-spartan way but he's gentle and kind and wise plutarch almost sets it up in the telling of the story right that you're as you're reading it you almost want to embrace all of his reforms because he's such a he's such a noble character, right? That mm -hmm. as the reforms are coming, 
and Plutarch is kind of explaining them and defending them in a way, right? Also, so that helps. But as those reforms are coming in, you're like, oh yeah, that would be, that would bring about this, that would bring about that. Mm-hmm. And you're like, share your wife. No, uh, what? No, I don't know about that one. <laughs> I think that's why I had to ask myself the question is because he starts off the big, Plutarch starts it off at the beginning saying, I'm not sure, we're not sure. So, you know, history isn't sure about this one person. That yeah. was this one person because he's such an ideal type. Right. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he does definitely does seem praiseworthy and mm-hmm. imitation worthy. And it does seem like Plutarch is praising him and asking other leaders to imitate him, right? No. I mean, so I don't know for each of you, like we could pick him apart, but that's one of the things that I appreciated about him was that um that he placed a a statue of laughter mm-hmm. in their meeting places and clubs and what have you. Um, and the note that the Hicks brothers put on the side was to say that that was a, a, a common thing in Greek life to personify things such as the, the mother of the muses being memory. So I was like, I can just see this laughing statue to be present in the rooms so that as they're doing a lot of very serious things, making many very serious decisions, there's a spot, a visual reminder. Um, we need to laugh. I appreciated that. And he tells us about that's that. Why, that's why Brandon's here, right? Is Brandon, Brandon our, our funny looking statue that reminds us to laugh? That's right. <laughs> You're so thoughtful, Matthew. Correct. <laughs> this is how I show my love by because I miss him so much. I have to tease him to um because I can't actually just say nice things to him. That's just that, that's you can't say I miss you, Brandon. That would make us all uncomfortable. Uh, he he brings that up after he's talked about how much they're disciplined. Is he's starting with children though, like how to learn to like both give a joke that's not really an insult and also but also be able to how to take a joke by yourself and not get super offended and i was like well we could probably use some more of that kind of training again like but uh, but on both sides right like we're really we've gotten bad at being funny without really being hurting like we, we don't do that very well but then also we don't take jokes for well we, we get easily offended so well and the third part of that was and if somebody does get offended, rightly or wrongly, if they ask you to stop, you stop. We stop. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's also, not necessarily what we do. <laughs> no, the uh, yeah, the goal being that the, the, it makes the con- like they learn how to do that as children, so that when it comes time to be in these adult assemblies, um, which appear to be mostly mostly men, because when they don't go to the assembly, they says they're home meeting with their wife. But yeah, how to how to be in good humor in conversation and have some levity in your even when you're discussing serious things. Yeah, he and he likened it to um, the need for them to recognize that they're. He likened it to the beehive, um, that they're there partly, you know, to serve the good of the whole hive and not just the individual themselves. Yeah, that. I think it was near there where he said something that I made a little note, and I was like, "Oh, I want to ask about that." Great. So, okay, so mine comes in section 27. Okay. But it's still, he's still talking about that basic idea. And I, I don't know if I'm getting distracted by a linguistic choice, a translation choice the Hicks brothers made. 
or if this is actually what or or a, a verbal choice Plutarch made, or this is actually what was happening in Sparta. But he says at the end of the first paragraph in section twenty-seven, mm-hmm. growing up in this environment, influenced by these models, informed by these habits, yeah. how could one fail to be programmed for virtue? And I like that was like the first time. I mean, besides like disagreeing with the particularities of some of the laws. Mm-hmm. Uh, that was the first time where I was like, it j- kind of jumped out at me that this might be going too far in creating virtue because mm-hmm. it is, it does feel like a kind of programming. Mm-hmm. And then when he used the word, of course I was like, yeah, right. Yeah. Yeah. The question then you're right becomes how much is that a claim that Plutarch is making, right? Like that it worked. You can program for virtue, right? We're going to set aside the amino and just say, I'm going to tell you, yes, you can program for virtue. And this is a model that does it, right? If you stick to it. Or like you said, is, is, is this a, a issue of translation or some, of some sort? But or, or, or is it like more rhetorical, right? Like how, how much is he actually saying that this is, this is a formula? If you do it, it will happen. And how much is he saying, or more is it, uh, more kind of like hyperbole, right? If you give them this much structure, how could it go? Like they would have to really be willfully moving, going against it to to not become virtuous. And it's hard to tell which way he's going on that. But yeah, I think if he's, I think if he's leaning that hard into, you can program it right specifically into it. Um, that might be, it might be stretching. Mm-hmm. It seems obvious to me that something like this couldn't work in America, and for a variety of reasons. One, because we're way too libertarian. Um, even when we're not libertarians, we're way too kind of freedom focused Two, because we're way too big, right? This doesn't seem like it could work outside of a city state. Like you can't, you you wouldn't, I mean, how do you implement common meals for the entire United States? (laughs) I mean, and I don't even think they were all eating common meals in the same space. There were multiple locations where they were having groups of 15, 20 guys. Yeah. Yeah. But how could you enforce that in, you know, uh, a nation our size or even a state like even North Carolina couldn't even enforce it. Uh, probably Charlotte couldn't even enforce it. Maybe Houston not definitely can't. Could. Houston can't for sure. No, Houston wouldn't be in two either, right? So you're, it's got to be a city state, but you're probably talking about a large town, not not a, not a large city in America. But th- but there's something appealing to me about the idea that these people were not segregated by wealth. There was no disparity of wealth and they weren't driven by wealth. Mm -hmm. They were driven by their, their wisdom and their, in their judgments and in their, um, the arts and in the art of war. Um, yeah, because the only certain arts, right? They weren't they weren't actually allowed to do much craftsmanship. That was mostly left to the slaves. Yeah, yeah, poetry and music, right, is all they basically get. Um, yeah, but like t- the desire to excel in those areas. Yeah, I think I think a couple things come to mind with the idea of it being programmable. Right, I think you're right that courage kind of emerges as the primary um, virtue for them. But it would also include like 
fortitude and self-sufficiency, but but not really self-sufficiency because they're interconnected with each other. But that if you don't steal, you don't eat kind of thing that they do with the boys growing up. And so the harsh realities of that is that a lot of people don't make it through the process, right? I mean, the babies that are too weak, they just toss in the in the ravine. And then the boys who can't steal enough food starve, right? And so to that extent, there is some programming that works. And it, and it really does mirror kind of how we do military training, right? That if you don't, if you don't make it through basic and you don't make it through whatever, and if you don't make it, and if you want to go something higher, you don't make it through seal training. You're not a seal, right? Like you, you do program some of that in by, I mean, not program, but you do, I guess, call the herd as, as part of the process. And so then it appears like, well, it, it, it produces virtue, but only in the ones who are already kind of maybe the, the right fit for that, for that mold to begin with. But the other thing, other elements of it, that's, that's kind of the harsh side of it, but the other elements of it, the communal meal, the it's all that meal, meal is made from the production from each person's plot of land that they bring the food together and then it's made. That reminds me um, less of a military and more of a, a monastic and ascetic setting, right? Where there's just, a, it's very limited activities. Like in a monastic setting, they may produce a few things, but not a lot of arts, right? They may, you know, this one might make wine, that one might make whatever. Uh, that's kind of what they produce to kind of sustain themselves. But mostly they're just gardening the thing they're going to eat that day. They're making the food they're going to eat. And they then they do those meals together. They cook the meals together. They eat those meals together. And so I think there is something beautiful to some of that. And maybe, maybe the place we can see it isn't so much in a... Uh, It'd be hard to do it in a large city, but maybe that's why it works in enclaves like um, boarding schools, right? Where they everybody everybody dresses the same, they have the same uniform, so there's not these kind of shows of wealth when it comes to clothing. You have the same spare rooms, you have the same you you know things to use to study with, same books, and so it erases some of those lines to an extent when people are there, um, and then produces some uniformity in understanding and learning and know how. Um, to some extent, but we don't really like boarding schools in America either. So, no, it's not the primary. Interesting. I thought it was interesting that he went as far as to note that others weren't allowed in, not for fear that they would steal the good, but because they would bring in the bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. That's so, why churches but, shouldn't accept converts. Oh, <laughs> just kidding. So it goes back to the question, how could one fail to be programmed for virtue? At at what point are we willing or ready to get rid of children who aren't meeting the standards? How long do they do that? How long do they cull their herd so that if they make it to eight, um, it's only because they are toeing the line? Mm-hmm. Right. We're breaking the line, the rule successfully in the case of yeah. the stealing your food thing. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You know, so were were they programmed for virtue or they just survived because they learned to do what you wanted them to do? I I mean, like, that's how I I made it through public school. I was great at playing the game. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, not everybody was. I had quite a few friends who dropped out of high school and I made it my endeavor to make all A's. Right. Like, how do you want to play? There was an interesting line in there where he talks about. This idea that the men, the adult men could not go to the marketplace. Yeah, I was, that's where I was hanging out too. Uh-huh. And then he 
they, they were not allowed to go to the marketplace. So they would have to send the young boys to the marketplace for them if they needed something. Mm-hmm. But then it says that the old men refused to go to the marketplace because it was thought to be shameful. Waste of their time. And I, I, that, that's interesting to me because the, the adult men couldn't go, but presumably, Plutarch doesn't tell us this explicitly, but presumably they would, they would have gone because they had been going when they were younger. Now they're adults. They just they they would very likely have just continued going, but then there's this rule now that prevents it, right? Did it say the young men would go? Because I didn't get that. I got that their relatives or lovers would go to the marketplace for them. Yeah, the lovers are their young boys. Okay, see, I don't go there. Yes, I know this, but my head doesn't go there. Okay, I'm back. I'm in. Keep going. Men under it's thirty modern years. Romantic. Men under thirty years never went. Under thirty, yeah. So, so you have this time when they're of a certain age that they're willing and able to go. Then there's this certain age where they're willing but unable to go, and then they reach an age where they're able but unwilling. Yeah. Right. It's it's even there. There's like a there's like they're playing the game. They're following the rules of the game. But the rules of the game are training them to love and despise certain behaviors and certain activities. And, and, right. and insofar as that particular love or that particular despising is, is a virtuous love or a virtuous despising, then it programmed virtue in that. I, that's, that was in top 25. It's right before Five. it talks about, talks about having conversations where it's lighthearted, but it's corrective. Mm-hmm. And it's right after a part that cracked, kind of made me laugh a little bit in 24 when he said, uh, this is one of the greatest blessings like Kirkus bestowed upon his fellow citizens, an abundance of free time. So like in yeah. our circles, that's like they have the leisure, they have the leisure for the higher things. Yeah. But in Sparta, that's a very limited set of activities, right? Like you can write songs and poetry about being awesome at war <laughs> and, and being courageous. And you can train for war in that leisure time. But like not many of the other crafts that we would think of even as leisure in those times for people who had slaves, like a lot of the other uh, arts. So they have this free time, but it's very even that's prescribed. Like what's what's honorable to be doing with that free time is very prescribed. Okay, so Um, I'd like to pull on that thread. Are you are you done? Are you you yeah? Go ahead. So what? Yeah, that idea of free time and what do we do with it and how it gets prescribed? What is allowed to go towards? I'm. For grad school, I'm reading a book by Timothy Keller and Catherine Alsdorf called Every Good Endeavor. And they start off, it's about work and how what what does faith and work have to do with one another? And um, they start off talking about how because of the Greeks, American society today puts different value on different jobs. Hmm. And we demean the trash collector or the what you know, the the manual laborer. Versus the one who gets to use ideas or create new things or what have you, right? We have a, there's a hierarchy and um, what's happened to our current youth now is that some of them won't even work because of this perception of what's worth our time and not worth our time. And they can't get paid enough to do anything. So I might as well not even work. Hmm. And I'm like, 
it was just interesting that I'm reading that book and then here this is, was was the Greek society Sparta or Greek the only ones who separated out who could do what kinds of work? I read this as Sparta had a, just a, a smaller set of things that were seen that were deemed honorable uses of time for their for their citizens and everything else was left to the helots, the slaves. And that included like I don't know, things I would have assumed that the Spartans would have done themselves, which had been like making their own weapons. You know, it's, it's uh, I'm not even sure they were doing a lot of that. It seems like it was the training. They spent their time training in the gym, mm-hmm. and then and then discussing and I mean having conversation, but not even the same kind of conversations the Athenians seem to be having. Mm-hmm. Yeah, they're, they're, for for a people known so much for being able to win in battle, right. They have little care for the spoils of battle, it appears, right? But if, if after Lycurgus. And so um it really is about just being good at it. Like the even the part about uh, don't don't attack someone so often and so frequent and so frequently or so frequently and so long that they learn how to fight better by fighting us. Like that's just yeah. next level strategy against about having the best military, right? Like, well, we'll only fight these guys like every 20 or 30 years so that they're so there no one, no one's around who knows how we beat them last time. Like it it's out. just, yeah. uh, it's really fascinating, but, mm-hmm. um, but I do think there is that stratification, but also that's all over the ancient world where you have a slave class, right? I mean, that's where that's kind of the rub for classical education in the modern area, modern era in a lot of ways is, yeah, we want to get to this point of having leisure, but then we, ha- we have to adjust, we have to reconcile that with, some of the some of the civilizations we're looking back to, they had some of that leisure because they had slave labor, right? And so, where's that balance in a in a more plural society, in a democratic society, or you know, doesn't have slaves? Essentially, how does that work out? We have plenty of leisure time. That's I mean, true. Guys, I mean, the ones that did work in the fields or whatever, like the Israelites, those guys were twelve hours a day, six days right. a week. You know, we're working 40 hours a day, five days a week. And in some places, we're going to four-day work weeks. You know, there's like... Yeah, we've eliminated bad. slave labor by technology, basically, is what happened. Let's be honest. Like, we think of ourselves much better than our predecessors. But mostly, we've been able to do that because we technologized ourselves out of the lower classes of labor. I mean, there is kind of two things going on there, though. Because I think... And that passage where, where, where it says that they were that they did not participate in crafts... Mm-hmm. Um, I think that in the context of the whole story is nobody did, not even the helots. Mm-hmm. There, there were no crafts in Sparta because they didn't care about that kind of stuff. Right. I mean, even the rules they had for building their homes, like they were allowed to have a saw and what was it, a saw and a hammer or something axe, like that? Axe and, and saw. An axe and a saw, and that's it. You got to build your whole house with that. And then and then it goes on to explain that. By living in in such a a Spartan house, <laughs> you would have Spartan furniture. Like you wouldn't have right. furniture in such a ridiculous looking house, or or fancy furniture would look ridiculous in such a in such a um, you know non luxurious home. The so I think there's there's both of those things going on, right? Like they didn't do those things because they had slaves to do those things. On the one hand, but on the other hand, they didn't do those things because they didn't have the, the things that those they are produced by those things. So right. I don't think anybody's doing arts and crafts kind of stuff in their world 
but also they they aren't growing their own food really they are you know right it focuses on this it focuses on that military mug right that is a prized possession but not because it's beautiful but because it's uber practical it it sifts out the dirt from the water so like the time they spent the thing they are spending time on are like practical tools for the rest of their lifestyle right i don't know if i were reading that book andrea if i would accept the blame being given to the greeks for it maybe i don't know i didn't actually i've pushed back on that i want to understand because i'm like really i mean it could have been the greeks that did it it could be the romans could but but then it could be the romans because of the greeks i don't know or maybe it's a particular community in greece you know mm-hmm. um i mean I, I don't know that it takes a particular ancient society to like inculcate us with the idea that i'd rather be sitting at a desk writing poetry than picking up someone else's stinking garbage like that's not that doesn't seem like it requires a lot of philosophical underpinning to to, to make one seem better than the other in the real world well and, and to me the buck has to stop somewhere and i don't i don't find it helpful um to go back to the greeks and blame them i don't i don't find that helpful so if it can help us inform something or understand something, but I'd rather, I appreciated St. Basil the Great, which you got to, you didn't get to read with us, Matt, um, and understanding more of our humanness and let that help me understand how we see work today yeah. um, rather than blame the Greeks. I'd be more inclined to agree with that statement that humans don't like certain kinds of work right yeah <laughs> not, not that not not that i mean even in even in in ancient israel there were jobs that if you did this job you were you were trapped outside of the city for seven days right or, clean, right like there's we can yeah. look at the egyptians and and the slaves that they had so and yeah. the kind of work that not everybody did the same work in that civilization either yeah so yeah one of the things that i did think was very interesting about the education if i can mm-hmm. go there for a second yeah in section 18 okay. it's a uh at the top of page 60 and you've got this this um Aaron Aaron captain guy that's like the the oldest boy of the class or the the strongest boy of the class or whatever and he says he puts a question that demands a careful response who is the best man in sparta or what is your opinion of so-and-so's behavior? And and you have to give one of those kind of uh, laconic, I guess was the word, the descriptor they used for it, those laconic statements that answers the question briefly, but like powerfully. Strongly. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and then it says, this started the boys out while still young, judging the behavior of others, whether admirable or disreputable, and taking an active interest in what their fellow citizens were up to. And then it then goes on. And what, what stood out to me there was when I first read it, I thought, oh my gosh, we would hate that. Like modern America, 21st century America would hate the idea of teaching children to judge people. Uh, <laughs> like you're not allowed to have opinions about anybody else's anything, right? It's all shaming. There's all kinds of shaming that we would accuse the person of, whatever, depending on what they were criticizing. But interestingly, it doesn't say, it doesn't say 
is this person good or bad or whatever? It says, what is the, what is your opinion of so-and-so's behavior? Right. And we still wouldn't like that, but that's a different thing. Right. And it's interesting that, you know, that is the third kind of rhetorical address, right? You have the, the, ju- the judicial address, the deliberative address, and then the epideictic or the um, ceremonial address, which is an address in which you praise somebody for their behavior or you censure them for their behavior. And it's uh, uh, it's it's one of those things, right, that by teaching the young boys to ask those questions and to be to have thought about like by asking those questions nightly you're teaching them to think about it all day long especially because they have to answer it with such a mm-hmm. good you know right. statement right so you're getting them to think about it all day long and to think about to to to, to train young people to think about <laughs> what behaviors are imitable and what behaviors should not be imitated what what embodiers of behaviors or what what who is the best man in sparta you know what people embody um virtue so well that i should imitate them and which ones should i not and to get them even thinking about it in those terms and and thinking about it all day and having to share their responses each night or to get their thumb bit or whatever (laughs) (laughs) um and and the oldest boy that's doing all of this is himself being observed and then he's being judged for how he how he judges them mm-hmm. afterwards right like there's just so much training in good judgment going on in the in this educational model that um i, I mean you, well you can see why it worked which well, goes back to like the story of like Kyrgyz getting hit in the eye and then taking the kid in, the young guy in, and his punishment was basically to make him learn to have better judgment. Yeah. Right. And so that's with the boy, with the older boys, they if they're later going to be the adult men who are judging like real crimes, right, or real thing, real things of, uh, um, they learn they're learning at this lower stage where they have just younger guys underneath them what's too much and what's too soft of discipline for, for a particular offense or a particular mistake. And so they're getting trained up all the way up. They're getting trained in how to assess behavior rightly uh, just by observation and then how to assess someone's judgment properly um, all the way through through the process. And I think you're right that we we would hate it or our society would reject the whole like whole concept. Um, but we tend to think of this kind of judgment as penal and accusatory, right? Like rather than a corrective, rather than, no, you actually want that person to get better or you actually want people to pay attention to someone who's doing things well so we can all get better by emulating that person. It's just, it's seen as just being mean by by us, but it's not. It's It's in their eyes to let someone go on being stupid or foolish would be the mean thing, right? Um, or to people be mistaken about what's what's good and what's admirable and what's not would be mean because you'd be teaching that person the wrong thing. Uh, I have a feeling that um, like Kyrgyz would be a big fan of the Lost Souls of Writing <laughs> and the should question. Yeah. <laughs> Whether Edmund should follow the White Witch, that's a good question. Although he probably wouldn't like how long the essays are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> much, yeah. much pithier statements. Definitely not. Reduce it to one sentence for me, please. Mm-hmm. <laughs> 
I mean, what a training though in their skills, right? Like mm-hmm. in writing, that's one of the things, you know, once I see my students of whatever age are able to have, you know, a thesis with supporting points and they're able to help me see that, I'll start looking at specific sentences and see how the strength of each sentence mm-hmm. um, by looking at its verbs and prepositions. And I'll help them then see that, you know, but they've got to get to that spot. Whereas like these young men were being trained young <laughs> to do it verbally, which is a great space to start in mm-hmm. with some real physical, tangible consequences. Give me that thumb. <laughs> yes. It's a little weird. Not the big toe. I, I don't know why the thumb. When it's this is something about the mouth and the mind that the consequence came on the thumb, not a thump on the chest. I don't know, right? I, I don't. Anyway, I just I don't know how that connects. <laughs> I don't know how it connects. <laughs> mm-hmm. Is there anything you're looking forward to, like because of this, you have questions to take to Numa? Right, because what is the? Why are they paired together? We don't yeah. know, but what are we expecting? Maybe in the. I mean, I don't. I actually don't remember it very well from having read it a few years ago. Me neither. I, don't either. I think we laughed out loud as an office when we read it. I, yeah. With like Kurgan, because of all those Laconian statements, right? Those yes. are fun. Yeah, yeah, all the little quips back. Yeah, yeah, yeah. The the Spartan women, the only one women who give uh, correction or instructions to men, and she responds with the only one who give birth to men. <laughs> pretty solid yep. um yeah i don't remember Numa either i mean i mean i have to assume based on the title given by the hicks that these are both guys who gave laws to their city in some shape or form um, or to their people but i don't really remember Numa pompilius um i remember that at least one of the lives we read because we read these two and then we read the two in the statesman together yeah. as office, right and I remember that at least in at least one of those lives, he was he was critical of the person he was describing. Okay, maybe that happens in the comparisons. I don't remember. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I feel be, like it would be very difficult for Numa to live up to like Kyrgyz's standards. Yeah, I'll be looking for things that like what are the differences in the results, right? Of the laws, like what what are the laws? And are they aimed at the same thing, right? Um, we, we talked about like Kyrgyz t- seem to be aimed at very much at order, courage. And kind of this sparse fortitude uh, to be able to to live very very simply um, is Numa. Are Numa's laws even even aimed at the same thing? And if not, you know, what are they aimed at? What are the actual results of the laws he makes? And then longevity. This like Hergus is impressive that they, this kind of Spartan way of life is. I mean, so it's so thoroughly became the way of Spartan life. It's still what we think of when we think of Sparta, right? I mean, even Spartan. Spartan you know, home. Yeah. yeah. Laconic speech. I mean, we still use that as a yeah. term. Like, yeah. so it's very much our image of Sparta, even if it eventually tailed off by the time, by the time of Plato, it, was, it wasn't as what it was. It lasted long enough that it kind of became the, it's the image of Sparta. If you think of Sparta, that's what you think of, right? If you think of Athens, you think of this thing over here and you think of Crete, you think of this, but think of Sparta, you think of what like, like Hergus apparently created with his laws. That's our image of Sparta. So it'd be interesting to see if Numa's Numa's laws are as, as impactful and long lasting. Yeah. Yeah. In the um because in, in the present day, right? I mean, we could, we created a republic, what, two hundred and fifty years ago? Yeah. And uh did it last has it lasted this long? 
Right. After 200 years. For, for better or worse, does ours look anything like what it looked like 200 years ago? I mean, in, if, if we're being generous and we're saying that it's ending right now, then we could last at 250. But I don't even, I think most historians would say it shifted from a republic to something else, a constitutional yeah. republic as it was, you know, to something else yeah. long before now. So maybe it lasted 150 years, 200 years. I don't know. Yeah. But like Kyrgyz's draconian <laughs> Spartan. Yeah. Civilization lasted 500 years or whatever. I think it's probably fair to say it, it, it broke, whatever it was, it broke at the Civil War. And when it got put back together, it got put back together differently than yeah. what it was before in, in, in form and structure. And then have, you, have, you ever read, um, have you ever read Maccabees, any of the Maccabees books, either of you? Mm -hmm. A little bit. The, um, I can't remember. I think it's second Maccabees because there's like four of them in the in those you know in that collection i think it's second maccabees where they go to the greeks they go to the spartans for help the maccabee family and the israelites go to sparta for help and i think initially they get it but maybe they don't i, I don't remember um they either initially get it then lose the then it stops or they don't they say no right away but one of the appeals that is made is that the Spartans went to Palestine and helped the Ju Joshua and the judges against their their war against the Philistines and the Canaanites and all those people. Giant clans. Yeah, the Gigantomachy, as it's sometimes called. Um, and that the, the, the Spartans helped them in those wars. And... and perhaps per, per, I think it might say that there's some intermarrying there or whatever. And that they're, and they're basically pleading to them and saying, look, we're your brothers come help us because you know, mm. we're actually the same people, you know, <laughs> which is interesting, but eventually they have to go to the Romans for help because the, the Spartans either say no, or the Spartans end up stopping offering, providing help after a while. Well, they can't uh, be watched for too long in battle. Cause you might learn. Exactly. Right. right. That's it. Right. Now we know they were, they were just following like Kyrgyzian law. Yeah. You, can't, you can't fight the same opponent too many times. Right. But then, and then somebody tells them, don't, don't, don't go to the Romans. If you go to the Romans, they're going to become your rulers. Owners. Huh. But they end up going to the Romans anyways. And Wow. Yeah. Whatever. So I, that's interesting, too, to think about that. Like, I've read that a couple of years, a few years ago. But, yeah. um, like, thinking about that in light of, like, Kyrgyz and stuff and... And, and like Kyrgyz potentially is living for during that time. Hmm. I don't know. Well, and during the time of the Gigantomachy, not in the time of the. No, the, I'm just saying it'd be interesting because there'd be little threat of Sparta ruling you the way the Romans do, right? Because they don't really have an interest in that. No, right. They they win and they go back to Sparta with whatever they needed to get from you, and they're done, kind of thing. So yeah, don't, the, somebody asks them, "How do you avoid war?" And then they say, well, don't have too much, and therefore nobody will attack you, mm -hmm. and don't want too much. Yeah, don't envy what your neighbor has, yeah. Yeah, and then you're not going out after starting wars. Yeah. Like, I mean, you know, there's some it's weird stuff. Contentment, I think. It's what? I think it's called contentment. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, there's some weird stuff in there with, you know, the sharing of wives and the sharing of children and throwing children off cliffs, but... Also, some things in there to be learned for sure.
Oh. Uh, there are some children I would like to throw off cliffs, just to be fair. That's true. Their last names all are Bianco. What? <laughs> Bianco, Kern. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> How they're, old they're can not, they're not little babies? <laughs> How old can someone still be considered a child? Their father's still alive. <laughs> <laughs> no, that yeah, that I mean, there's yeah, that's some weird stuff. But the uh, what he was trying to do, like the way he did it, is sometimes weird and sometimes commendable. But the 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 end is. Very interesting. I don't, I don't mean it and justifies the means the way. Like I'm not. I don't think we should throw children off of cliffs or into the dump, as it as it gets oh. called in this translation. I don't think we should do that at all, no matter what our end is. But but his end is an interesting one, right? Like it's about establishing a virtuous community, mm-hmm. a virtue of virtue within the person, right? So that they're not torn into pieces by their own appetites and desires. And then, therefore, virtue within the community because the people themselves are living harmoniously with one another. That's yeah. um, I don't know, just a fascinating goal. And I did find it interesting, like, the one thing he failed to do, like, on its own was to just get people to give up their stuff. And so he found a workaround, which is like, well, I'll just make it miserable to try and buy stuff. <laughs> like, yeah. Just make silver and gold worthless, uh, which is impressive. And it's like, we're just not going to make coins out of it anymore. Um, make useless, brittle, worthless coins, and then you just will get by with less. So, I think in Alcibiades, in the dialogue of Alcibiades, remember we read that, and it was one of our very first episode, wasn't mm-hmm. it? Yeah, yeah. yeah. When, when Socrates is trying to help help Alcibiades know himself, and he he goes through this process where he's compares Alcibiades to other people. And one of the people he compares him to is the Spartan, Spartan king. Hmm. Um, and he tells him, you think you have wealth, but the Spartans actually have more gold and silver than anybody else, any other city in any other any other city state in Greece. Which is interesting, right? Because this story would indicate that they shouldn't. Yeah. But I think the way Socrates puts it is or the way the way it fits is because people are paying them for their services and for their stuff, whatever, but then they're not spending it because they're not buying anything. So there's like this vault or something that the city has yeah. where it's just putting all this gold and silver that's being poured into the city by outsiders. But then they're not giving any money back to outsiders because there's no there's nothing the outsiders have that they want. So they would in that case be have a huge stockpile. Yeah. It's like a it's like a massive trade deficit. What's that all about? In their favor, right? Like, I mean, in their favor in 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 such a way that they have all the money. Like they're importing, I mean, they're exporting all this, I don't know, whatever. They have all this money in their in the city that eventually i mean i i guess well it's gold and silver yeah i don't know they just have it all stockpiled and could wipe out i mean could buy out anybody i don't know i don't know what the implications of that are but you have a bad year you can buy all the grain you need from somewhere else maybe i don't know yeah but if their heart truly didn't want for more it didn't it didn't matter yeah I, i think to some degree i can't understand that um, no, me neither. 
My heart is not that pure. Mm -hmm. No, but it help. It would help, I think, to live in an in a community where not nobody has that. Right. Right. You would you would become that by yeah. habit training, by programming. <laughs> <laughs> you would be programmed. Yeah. Right. Well. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, the reason I want the newest iPhone is because everybody else around me wants the newest iPhone, right? It's just imitation, mimetic right. desire. I mean, probably the closest thing we have to even view of something like that would be some of the like, uh, like Mennonite or you know, community the closed communities that are just provide for themselves, Amish, right? Um, and they also restrict technology, so to some mm -hmm. extent, yeah. But that's only. Yeah, it's kind of it's hard, hard for us to imagine though, in a lot of ways. All right, well, we've been going, I think, a little over an hour now, so we should probably say our goodbyes on Lycurgus, who we'll get to revisit because eventually we'll have to talk about the comparison. So it's good being with you guys again, man. Agreed. I enjoy it. All right, well, thank all of you at home for pulling down the book and uh, reading with us. We hope you'll join us next week for the second half with Numa Pompilius. Um, and you can send your questions and comments to podcast at Cersei and be sure to check out the other shows on the Cersei podcast network. Mm -hmm.